all right, here's what I'd like to do. I know this will feel even stranger than using the hymnal for hymns, but uh, there are these things in the back called responsive readings, uh, or I read part of it and you read part of it. If you'll open to 720, I want us to read, I was trying to think of how to begin the Bible study time tonight. And as I was looking at this, I think the wording in this response of reading for 720, I think that this will, this will work well to point us in the right direction. Um, thinking about kind of where we're going with the book of Leviticus, we still have three weeks in the uh, book of Leviticus to finish out things, and then we'll move and, and do some different things starting in February, but but for right now, um, we're going to continue to think about that. So I'll read 720. You can stay seated. I'll read the light print. You respond in the bold, and I'll continue to speak very slowly to buy time for Alan as he runs around the back of the room. And uh, I can only elongate it so long there. <laughs> okay, let, let me start out. I'll read the light print. You respond with the bold print. This is 720 talking about the priesthood of the believer. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint, but willingly not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Wonderful. Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, I'm going to do everything in my power not to cough too many times, so I will try to turn my mic off if that happens, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. Okay, half sheet of paper, front back, on the back table, let me point you to the opening section so we can all start kind of in the same place, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground and we'll do our best and see where we make it. We want to understand, in Leviticus is similar in a, well, you could really take just about every biblical book, but Matthew is very much like this, Leviticus is very much like this, and Leviticus and Matthew come from similar uh, frameworks, but the structure of the book helps you understand the meaning of the book. 
So they're not just randomly slapping this together and throwing jello against the wall. The way the book is put together actually carries theological weight just as much as the parts within it. And so when you're thinking about the book of Leviticus, there's a structure here that runs from Exodus 40 with the establishment of the tabernacle. And even before that, in the book of Exodus, you have the way that the book is put together, that the tabernacle is going to be put together. And so the tabernacle is being set up, and then from Exodus 40, really through Leviticus 9, you have all of the offerings and the sacrifices that are going to be necessary for worship that are put into place. And Leviticus 9 is this incredible experience of worship where the fire of God comes in all of his glory and his power, and, and you start to see the fulfillment of a lot of what this has been pointing to with the tabernacle and being able to be in the presence of God. How do you come into the presence of God? Well, you don't walk in there pridefully saying, I'm in charge for sure. God makes a way to be in his presence, to be in his holiness. What happens if you walk pridefully in the presence of God? Well, Leviticus 10 tells you. Uh, you face death. Uh, you, don't, you don't make it out of that type of situation. And so you have that. And then from Leviticus 11 through 16, it's all about the inner holy of holies. Exodus 40 through Leviticus 10 is about the tabernacle as a whole, what God is doing to prepare the people. Leviticus 11 through 16 is about the inner area leading up to the Day of Atonement for the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum that, that high priests only went into one time a year. Now, Leviticus 17 through 25, if you look in your Bible, I can point you to where the, the, the turn happens. So look at Leviticus chapter 17, because there's a transition that happens here. So we're in, we're in Leviticus 17, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel. So this already feels a little bit different because it's addressed to everybody. And say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Now, like a lot in Leviticus, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but there's actually something that's happened here. That phrase in the middle of three, or really toward the end of three, if this happens in the camp or even outside the camp further out, where's all this taking place? Is it in the Holy of Holies? Is it in the holy place? Nope. The focus has now moved out to where the regular people live. Chapter 16 puts you right in the middle of the Holy of Holies, that place that the high priest only goes once per year. Chapter 17, kind of in a subtle way, but the focus moves to where the regular people live, so to speak. The lay people, it moves into the camp and then even outside the camp. This is really key because what happens is in 1 through 16, the focus is largely on the priest and the sacrifices and what happens in the tabernacle, the holy place and the holy of holies. 17 to 27 is what happens among the community. It's more communal. Here's the reason that matters. We have to be careful with oversimplifying this. But when you read a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you'll have the opening chapters that will be more theological, more kind of laying a foundation. And then the second half of Paul's letter 
will be more practical or ethical or this how it pertains to your life. The most famous example of this is the book of Ephesians where one through three is laying this theological foundation of worship and then four through six is very much building on that with this is how you should live. That's kind of how the book of Leviticus is built. First half, one through 16, is laying this theological foundation of worship. How are you able to worship? How are you able to come into the presence of the Lord? How are you able to experience holiness? 17 through 27 is, in light of that, how then shall you live? Theological, foundational material, ethical, communal, this is how you're going to live. And so we think of that type of setup with Paul's letters, but actually it comes from the book of Leviticus. That's where we start to get that foundation. There's a key point here, though. It's all about worship and holiness. And there is a relationship, a particular relationship between intimacy with God and holiness. How do you find holiness in your life? The more we are in the presence of God, the more we understand what it is to know him and to worship him, the more we will find ourselves living the holy life that he's created us to live. Not in God's presence, not worshiping him, probably not living a holy life, then here's something that we all understand too well. It works in a cycle. Not pursuing holiness, want nothing to do with worship and the presence of God. Which creates another cycle, nothing to do with the presence of God, definitely no one to pursue holiness. Now my life really stinks, I know it stinks. Am I going to run back to God? Everything inside me says yes, but oftentimes we don't, do we? Um, there's that old school uh, preacher phrase that either sin will keep you out of God's word or God's word will keep you out of sin. You know, that type of idea. When we're in the word of God, when we're worshiping with the people of God, when we're in the presence of God, it drives us toward holiness. When we're not in the word of God, when we're not in worship, when we're not in the presence of God, it doesn't drive us toward holiness. And I wish I could tell you it was more complicated than that or there was more to it than that, except we know from our own lives that's just not true. Um, what you need, what I need, what we all need, is when we begin to get away from the presence of God and our life doesn't reflect that holiness, you need the good friend who steps in and says, whoa, time out. And I know this is going to be hard to hear, but part of what go is going on in life right now is I think that you may have gotten away in the presence of God. What does it look, are you reading scripture? Are you praying? I'm not trying to be legalistic, but are you in the presence of God? Are you worshiping with the people of God? Um, I think I've told you this, in fact, I know I've told you this story, but the time that I've spent working with college students, and it's not just college students, but I've just seen it particularly there. College students would tell us, when I get my life back together, I'll be back in church. As soon as I can get this stuff taken care of, Man, I want to be back in church. Well, you can look at them and say, it doesn't work that way. Like, come back to the presence of God. He wants you to be, to be back here. Um, yet we know in our own heart, we could, we could find ourselves in the same place. And so when you look at the book of Leviticus, it is presence of God, worship of God, that theological foundation that's what leads to the holy living that we're called to. So I want you to see how those are put together. The book of Leviticus, I've, I kind of broke it down for you there, even 17 through 27, how it's a book of worship and holiness. Chapter 17, we're going to find out it's a hinge chapter. It's 
making the transition from 16 into the second half of the book. And it focuses still on sacrifices. 18 and 20, 18 through 20, follow this pattern where 18 is primarily about sexual immorality and idolatry. 19 is a very famous chapter in the book of Leviticus about how to live a holy life. In fact, in chapter 19, it's interesting, all ten commandments are reinforced in that chapter. You don't see them laid out necessarily exactly as the ten commandments, but the content of the ten commandments are all reinforced in Leviticus 19. Then it comes back around to 20 and essentially repeats chapter 18. Then 21 and 22 begin to lead into the priesthood and the purity of the sacrifice. So let me walk you through this. We're going to walk through these chapters and, and see how this, how this plays out. Chapter 17, we've already noticed in verse 3 how the focus is in the camp or even the area outside the camp. Let's keep reading starting in verse 5. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field. This is the middle of verse 5. That they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is all that early Leviticus material that we looked at several months ago. Verse 7. Here's a key so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt sacrifice, or offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Seven and eight are very important here because what it's setting up is this key thing of will our life be devoted to the Lord, worshiping him, or will we be devoted to other gods and go after those gods? If that sounds familiar, that thread goes all the way through the prophets in the Old Testament. It goes right up into the heart of the New Testament, and Paul talks about it seemingly every letter that he writes in, in the New Testament as well. Jesus says it this way, you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one, hate the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You're either going to give yourself fully to the Lord, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, beginning of the commandments, or you're going to find yourself going after other gods. Um, we were looking at something on social media the other day, and there was uh, a goat on there, and Amanda was like, why is there a goat? Now, I need to tell you, Amanda is amazing at, at, about knowing what's going on in the sports world. So her sports knowledge is, is really high, but she's like, why is there a goat there? Greatest of all time. Like, goat is the go-to phrase now, that the acronym that stands for greatest of all time. So if you see a goat in your social media feed, it's not because it's a goat demon. Um, now, the irony of this is that throughout history, uh, up until probably Facebook came along, goats primarily were associated with Satan or demons. Like if you saw a goat imagery, it was usually in reference to the devil or, or to a demon. If you spent much time around goats, you may make a correlation uh, but between those, those two things. But 
the goat here was seen as a demonic influence or a representing another god and so if you were offering your sacrifice to a goat you're giving worship to another god that's what it's coming down to and leviticus says you're not going to do that you're not serving the goat god and the creator of the goat it's it's one or the other who are you giving your your worship to and so it gets to that point now get to verse 10 this is going to sound very very familiar to you even people that have not grown up in church don't know bible oftentimes this will sound very familiar Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Why is this common? In Jewish faith, it goes back to this idea that the life of an animal, the life of a being is found in its blood. And so when that blood is released, it's if the life is going out. Now, where's the connection with our Christian faith? You go to the New Testament and you find the phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that Christ gave his life when his blood was poured out. Um, this, is, this is Lord's Supper, communion language. This blood is the new covenant. Or this is the new covenant of my blood. The connection here is that what Christ did through his death and the giving of his blood finally brings to fulfillment what you find in Leviticus 17 here that the life of something is found in the blood. Now, what this will lead to in 17, and you can even trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, but what you find is what this means is the people of God are called to protect life. That you don't, why, why did they not eat blood? There's, this is some of the question. Why did they not eat, eat blood? Because it's as if they are taking something that only belongs to the Lord. So if I eat the blood of an animal, in reference to Leviticus 17, it's as if I'm taking into myself something that only should be given to God. I'm, in a sense, stealing from God. I'm taking life. And across Scripture, the idea that we don't take something that belongs to us. God decides when life begins and when it ends. Humans don't make that decision. And so there is very much a protection of life element that's behind the sacrificial system here in 17. You're going to find it reinforced a couple of different times as we go through these chapters in reference to child sacrifice. God is extremely clear that the blood of a child is most certainly never to be taken um, or used in worship. And so you transfer that to contemporary life. The protection of children is at the very top of those who are the people of God, that you're not going to take any life that belongs to God, you're definitely not going to take the life of a child. And so that deserves particular, uh, particular protection. All right, let's take the transition there from, from 17 and, and move into chapter 18. Is it right? Um, sorry about that. Um, okay, chapter 18 starts this section about unlawful uh, sexual relationships. Let's read verses 1 through 5 here. Of, uh, of this chapter. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore, verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Okay, a couple of things to notice from the beginning of 18. Don't do what you did or what they did in Egypt. That's where you came from. Don't do what they do in Canaan. That's where you're going. So your past, where you came from, I told you to stay separate from them. Canaan, where you're going to live, don't live as the people there live. Thanks for that. Um, the, the connection here is how many gods did they worship in Egypt? I don't know, but it was more than one. <laughs> how many gods did the Canaanites worship? I don't know, but it was more than one. And so in both cases, worshiping multiple gods, did that lead to pure life-preserving moral behavior? Not in the least. Um, and so God is saying, you were called to be separate from the Egyptians. I brought you out of there not to bring you to Canaan to act like the Canaanites. I brought you into this land to stand out, to live differently. And so we know, I, I know this is old material, but we just want to make sure we're clear. The laws that we begin to find are not laws that God randomly throws at the people. They're designed for what? So that they would stand out. So that they would be different in, in the culture around them. Uh, to use Matthew's Sermon on the Mount language, that they would be salt and light in the world that they're living in. Um, very simply, to put it bluntly, to be the people of God is to live differently than the world around you. Um, and the more you pursue that life that God has called us to live, the more it will look different than, than people around us. And it sounds so simple at the core, but we know the allure to fit in, <laughs> and we know the response that comes sometimes when you live in a way that doesn't match the world around you. The, um, just the, the strange looks, or you're not on the right side of history, or how prudish you are. You know, you, you know the responses that come in those type of situations, but the whole calling of the people of God from the very beginning is that you would live in a way that is distinct from the culture around you. And on top of that, the laws that God gives the people are designed to help them flourish <laughs> and designed to help them protect and preserve life. So once again, they're not random. They're designed to help you live life to the fullest. And when you do that, it will allow you to be distinct and to be salt and light. Why? Because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. How do you have abundant life? By following the way of the Lord. How do you see your life stolen and destroyed? By not living that way and, and trying to fit in with, with the world uh, around you. So this is all built in that. Here's another thing. End of verse 5, it says, uh, you shall there, well, let's just read all of verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. 
I am the Lord. If you took the time to navigate your way through Leviticus 17 to 23, you would find the phrase, I am the Lord, repeated and repeated and repeated over and over again. So look there at verse 5. It's there. Now look at the very end of chapter 18. So keep my charge, never to practice any of these abominable, uh, this is 1830. Keep my charge, never to practice any of these customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. That phrase frames all these rules that come in between. Why should you not have, or why should you not, should you not partake in sexual morality? Because I am the Lord your God. It's an authority issue. Who's in charge? Who's the Lord? I am. So live in this particular way because I'm going to lead you to life. If you go ahead to um, chapter 19, just for a second. Chapter 19, verse 3, ends with, I am the Lord your God. Chapter 19, verse 4, ends with, I am the Lord your God. Chapter 19, you go to the very end of chapter 19, verse 36. It ends with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Over and over and over again as these laws are given, it's I am the Lord your God. If you had a chance to read the Route 66 material for this week, we're in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. What's the core verse there in, in verse 14? When God reveals himself, how does he reveal himself? I am who I am. That promise of God's name and character in Exodus 3 is carried all the way through the book of Leviticus. And then when you find the one who came to show us what life looks like, how does Jesus reveal himself many times in the Gospel of John? I am. I am. I am. And you have that thread that runs from Exodus 3 all the way through the book of Leviticus straight up to the Gospel of John who Jesus is to come and bring life. And so all that material is packed in here. We're not going to take much, we're, we're not going to read through chapter 18. Um, frankly, it's a little uh, revealing to read through chapter 18. Um, the, uh, the essence of chapter 18 is sexual intimacy works a lot better between one man and one woman. That's how God designed it. That's how it's supposed to happen between husband and wife. And so he lists all the other options if that is not what is happening and says, don't, don't partake in these. Within that chapter, something I would want you to be aware of, and this will bleed into chapter 19. You don't want to overlook the fact that these laws that God is setting down in chapter 18 in reference to sexual immorality, many of them are designed to protect a weaker party. Um, designed to protect as much as they are to guide. And so this is not just God saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's as if God is saying, protect this, protect this, protect this, because if you do, it will lead to life. It will lead where you're, where you're called to go, particularly the protection of women and children. And you think about the pain um, and just the, I can't even come up with a bad enough word, to, but 
that's associated with sexual abuse and the culture we live in and all the things that have come to the surface. And the call of God, even in the law of Leviticus 18, is that um, sex is never a matter of power, even though it's, tried to, it's often tried to be used in, in that way. And so we have a call to, to protect um, those who are most vulnerable in those situations. Um, Yeah, I think that's the main thing there. Let's go to chapter 19, because you're going to see that, that same idea uh, come over here. Okay, chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's good, because that's, that's showed up in Leviticus chapter 11. At the very end of Leviticus chapter 11, you got that same type of language. You also get it in the New Testament in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn over there just for a minute because 1 Peter is going to be toward the end of your going to be toward the end of your Bible when you get deep in the New Testament. But I want you to see how this how this language works here. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews James and then First Peter. I don't think I realized until this afternoon, uh, reading through some of this First Peter language, how much Leviticus is is going on right here. So this is First Peter chapter one, starting in verse thirteen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then listen to this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then look over in chapter 2, um, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which waged war against your soul. And then listen to verse 12, because verse 12 is, is everything in Leviticus we've been trying to get at. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I hope just look, looking at some of those verses in First Peter there, you see all of that Leviticus background that, that's playing into to what's happening here. Go back to Leviticus chapter 19. I told you Leviticus 19 reflects a lot of the Ten Commandments. Verse 3, Leviticus 19, verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. 
Sound like a Ten Commandment? Yep, fits in there. You shall keep my Sabbaths. Sounds like a Ten Commandment? You bet. Verse 4, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. Sound like a Ten Commandment? Kind of being foolishly repetitive, but yes, it does. Um, then look at verse 5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. 5 through 8 is talking about the fellowship that the people have with the Lord. So faithful to the Lord, having fellowship with the Lord. What, what does that lead to? Leviticus 19.9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. The cool thing there is that verse plays into the book of Ruth. Um, you've got, when the people follow the way of the Lord, you have the book of Ruth playing in there. Verse 10, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your Lord. Verse 11, it's like they're trying to cram in all the Ten Commandments they forgot to list up to this point. They're getting them all in there. But 9 and 10 back there that we looked at, those are about caring for the poor, about caring for, for the oppressed. Um, if you turn your note sheet over, and you look at the back, at the top in bold letters are the word power, greed, and then the need for boundaries and limits. If you're trying to sum up, what is God doing in 18 through 20? He is trying to put into place laws that will address the issues of people taking advantage of power, and people taking advantage of greed with no boundaries or limits on that power and greed. Because if you provide power and you mix in a little bit of greed and there are no, are there no boundaries or limits put on it, what happens at that point? Well, chaos is what happens at that point. And, and we live in a culture even where you see some of that, you see some of that at work. And so God is coming in and putting that into practice. I don't know how you seep this actually into the wider world other than just it starts with the church and what God has called us to do. But the essence of 19, 9 through 10 is our goal in life is not to take and acquire as much as possible for ourselves. Um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had quite a bit to say about that. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Luke 19, if your barn doesn't allow everything to fit in there and you have more stuff, it's foolish to build a bigger barn so that you can fit all your stuff in there. That's not what we're called to do. It's not about how much can I gather for myself. Um, now, I'm not saying that you have to uh, watch the, the Marie Kondo video and get rid of all of your, all of your stuff and, and send it away if it doesn't give you joy. But uh, there is something to be said that the goal of life is not to accumulate, accumulate, gather every we can. 
even from an agricultural perspective, a lot of what we're doing to God's creation in the effort to get more and more out of the land is working against the creation that God has given us um, because we're trying to strip as much as possible when we were called to actually be stewards of, of creation as, as people. And so this even impacts how we do agriculture. It impacts uh, food production. It impacts environmental decisions. All of this is, is going back to some of these realities right here and, and living in a generous way. Chapter 19, you look in verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You hire somebody for the day, you pay them their wages. They, they did the work, they get paid. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Remember what we talked about earlier, that so much of this language is about protecting the vulnerable, protecting those who are weakest? That's what we have at work here. Those who have physical needs, um, those, who, uh, those who are most vulnerable are those that God's people are called to watch out for and, and protect. You go to the next section, verse 15. Uh, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or deferred to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. <laughs> Once again, you can see all the Jesus language coming here from, from the book of Leviticus. Here's something I would point out to you in, in the midst of all this as we get ready to wrap up. We're going to look at a couple more verses and then we'll stop. In the way Leviticus is set up here, holiness leads to love for others. Here's where we have to be careful. Sometimes in our culture, and especially in our Christian subculture, holiness can easily lead to pride. When in fact, Leviticus says, if you're seeking to live a holy life, it should lead to love for those who are most vulnerable. And so, I'm pretty sure this impacts none of you, but it, there is a small world in which people think that the goal of holiness is to go online, especially to social media, and debate all the other people about the nature of holiness. When biblically, through Leviticus, holiness says, the result of holiness is how well do I tangibly love those who are most vulnerable around me? How do I love my neighbor as, as myself? So in the way of Jesus in God's kingdom, holiness leads to love. 19, we're going to wrap up with the, the rest of 19 because a lot of 20 through 22 is, continues to be repetitive. 19 says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Okay, check the tag of the person in front of you <laughs> to find out how, how they're doing with this. So the idea in this part of 19 is maintaining distinctions. 
maintaining categories. If the Lord has set up a category or a distinction, if we blur those categories, that actually perverts God's creation that he has set up. So when categories are set up, live within those categories is, is the point of 19. Now, it gets pretty good as you get further on down in 19. I don't want to miss this. 1932, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So, next time you walk in the room, if you have gray hair, people should stand up for you. Um, if they don't, tell them to look at Leviticus 19.32 and, uh, and take it up with the Lord. What it's saying here is there should be a reverence or respect for those who are older. And we're not picking on older people here. But remember, the whole theme of the chapter is protecting those who are most vulnerable, those who are weak. Now, here's where it kind of all comes together and we wrap up and think about Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Who has the text been saying that we are called to protect early in the verses? Children. You protect those who are most vulnerable as children. Who is it called to respect and protect in this case? Those who are older. The protection of life, the upholding of life among Christians, among God's people, starts at the very youngest of ages and extends to the very oldest. That we live in a culture that often disregards the life of a newborn, even pre-newborn, but equally disregards the life of those who are older. Can't produce, difficult to care for, go off and do your own thing. God's word says those who are weak, those who need our care most, are those that deserve the greatest protection, the greatest honor, those that we're called to care for. Also, you skip down one more verse, 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, shall do him no wrong. Who else deserves our care? Those, who's in, those who are immigrants, those who are coming from other places. So with that in mind, with that in mind, go back to the end of your New Testament to the book of James. Read this verse that in light of what we just said will need very little explanation. James chapter 1. What does it mean to be holy? You love those the Lord has placed around you, especially those who are most vulnerable, protecting, providing for life. James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. What's Leviticus all about? Being pure and undefiled. What kind of religion is that? To visit orphans and widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27 is... Leviticus 17 to 22. That that's the life that we've been called to live. That's who we've been called to be as a church. All right, let's pray together as we wrap up. God, we know that holiness is not something 
that we earn on our own. Father, that it comes through the blood of Jesus. Our hope is in him. Yet we also know that we are called to be holy because you are holy and we grow in that and the result of that should be love. Love for the youngest, most vulnerable child. Got a church that works for adoption and foster care. A church that works against abortion and in favor of life. But at the same time, a church that cares for it and respects and upholds those who are older. And a church that reaches out to the immigrant to love and to protect. That cares for the poor, not, not through pity, but through love to share the gospel. God, let us not be a church, let us not be a people driven by greed or power. But God, let us be a church driven by love, by pure and undefiled religion. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.